of Peoria's young professionals are challenging you to prioritize self-care. You cannot pour from an empty well. And especially when it comes to people who work in service. Find out more about self-care and the arts of sometimes saying no just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon, I'm Jody Holtz. Coming up, Mariama Ford of the Tri-County Peoria Urban League Young Professionals talks with WCBU's Tim Shelley about the 21-day self-care if you dare challenge. And what a descendant wants you to know about a small Illinois town founded by formerly enslaved people. One of the important, powerful messages was really about the importance of family. Plus, an Illinois Central College professor explains the role cover crops can play in preventing dust storms like those seen near Springfield earlier this month. Those stories plus local news just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Support for WCBU and WCBU.org comes from the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. Flying PIA supports the local economy and is the local option to travel for business or pleasure. Trips begin and end at Peoria International Airport. Details at flypia.com. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria, and I'm your host, Jody Holtz. Great to be with you here on this beautiful day. Finding a moment to spare for ourselves between all of life's other obligations can sometimes be challenging. But during Mental Health Awareness Month, two Peoria organizations are encouraging people to prioritize finding the time for the sake of your own well-being. Mariama Ford of the Tri-County Peoria Urban League Young Professionals joins WCBU's Tim Shelley to explain the 21-day self-care if you dare challenge. It was actually an idea that I and um, Sincere Williams, who's the chair of the NAACP Young Adults Committee, kind of came up with together. Um, I'm the president of the Tri-County Peoria Urban League Young Professionals. It's a mouthful. And um, so we wanted to collab, right? We're thinking one of the biggest things that we can do as young adults um, to kind of change the narrative is to start working together. So uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so uh, we were wanting to do something based around that. And I thought that self-care would be a great uh, way to kind of talk about mental health because self-care is something that anybody anybody and everybody needs to have um, to be healthy and well. And it's a great, I think, starting piece to talk about mental health. And so we just kind of came together, um, came up with the idea of the 21-day self-care if you dare challenge. Um, And along with that, we decided to do a self-care boot camp, uh, which is actually going on this week. It's on Instagram Live at at 6 p.m. And we have some self-care advocates that we've identified from the community who are doing a lot of uh, great work who are going to be coming on and kind of telling our audience, you know, why it's important to have self-care, um, how they kind of got to that idea that they need self-care and how we can start practicing self-care on the daily so that we can make it a habit. So let me let me start with something really basic. Okay. Self-care. How, how do you define self-care? What is self-care? So I actually um, had to look it up and there and the dimensions because there's different dimensions. So Self-care is the practice 
of taking care of your your needs um, like on the daily, you know, because you cannot pour from an empty well. And especially when it comes to people who work in service, um, it's a lot of giving, a lot of pouring out, let alone when you have families and friends and things like that. Um, So you can get empty pretty fast. And so self-care is about making sure that you are prioritizing yourself, taking care of your um, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, um, holistic self um, so that you can be your best self and give it back to the world. So that can cover, like I said, mental, emotional, physical. We have financial self-care, which is something that a lot of people don't think about and don't want to think about, to be honest. (laughs) Um, And then we have like creative expression um, or self-expression, um, which is also really huge that I feel like a lot of people don't realize the importance of. And I mean, really, they all they all tie in to different ways to approach taking care of yourself. I just think that a lot of times self-care, it's kind of trendy, you know. And so when people think of self-care, they think of facials and getting their nails done and going on vacation, which... I am all for all of those things. Very necessary. But they don't talk about uh, going to therapy. They don't talk about uh, budgeting. They don't talk about um, kind of having those relationships with friends and family and and things outside of just, I guess, the visual that people see when it comes to self-care. A lot of the work is really done internally um, and done on your own. And it's really hard to know when to when to start or how to start. And I know one thing that uh, just t- speaking personally, mm-hmm. when when you are a type of person that's continually you know doing things for other people, it can be very hard to say no to people. Like no, because you feel selfish, <laughs> and then you feel guilty, and yes. it's just like it, it's hard to say no. You know, I need this time for myself. How how do you encourage people to say, okay, it's it's not being greedy if I'm saying this amount of time is set aside for me and my needs, not giving it to someone else? Right. So the first thing, I struggle with this as well. Um, I actually started going to therapy in January. And one of the first things that my therapist wanted me to do was to practice saying no, right? Um, and very small. You know, you don't have to... To practice self-care, you don't have to do the all or nothing, right? So you just say no to everybody and everything. But recognizing that um, saying no or even just saying not right now or giving them another suggestion, right, isn't selfish, especially when it comes from a place of you putting your needs first. And for me, it's a big perspective shift um, because I do think – um, it's really funny with America that saying stuff like that, no, and all this other stuff is being selfish. But then we're also a kind of self-absorbed like society. And and so yesterday we had one of our um, advocates, Kenneth Godbolt III, and he actually put it in perspective for me. He said we have 24 hours in a day, right? If you gave eight hours to work, if you sleep eight hours, that means you have another eight hours. If I give myself two hours out of 24, am I really being selfish? And I thought about it and I'm like, man, that's the, that's, what is that? One twelfth, <laughs> one twelfth of the day. Yeah. And, and then not only that, he brought up a good point. He was like, who told you 
that you shouldn't prioritize yourself? Who told you that, you know, it's not important, that it's selfish? Um, And honestly, I think a lot of that is us um, absorbing negative uh, input from other people or just listening to ourselves talk or just coming up with our own ideas. But really, it's, it's all about that small, daily, consistent practice um, that's going to take to start shifting your perspective and start shifting um, your habits. And that's why this 21-day challenge we thought would be a great way to introduce that idea to people. That was Mariama Ford speaking to Tim Shelley about the 21-day self-care if you dare challenge. It wraps up next Wednesday with the Selfie of Champions event from 5.30 to 7 at the It's A Vibe Selfie Studio in Northwoods Mall. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. You're listening to All Things Peoria. I'm Jody Holtz. A small Pike County, Illinois town rich in history is making headlines nearly 200 years after it was founded. New Philadelphia made a name for itself in 1836 when it became the first town legally registered and platted by a formerly enslaved person. Recently, the town site became the nation's 400 124th National Park. As Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson reports, the descendant-led and community-wide effort was years in the making. New Philadelphia sits along a strip of Illinois Route 2, roughly 25 miles east of Hannibal. The property is an open field with towering trees scattered throughout. The original structures are all but gone except for their foundations sitting beneath wooden homes from the 1800s, moved there from neighboring towns. But what has lasted are the stories passed down about the town's founders, the McWhorters, a last name full of history. One of the important, powerful messages was really about the importance of family. That's Gerald McWhorter. He's the great-great-grandson of Frank and Lucy McWhorter. What Frank and Lucy did uh, was devote their lives, really, to making sure that, on the one hand, they provided a place for the family in Pike County in New Philadelphia. At the same time, uh, they devoted their economic activity to freeing family members out of slavery. In 1836, New Philadelphia became the first town in the nation to be legally registered and laid out by the formerly enslaved couple. Frank was born into slavery in 1777 in South Carolina. He and his owner, George McWhorter, eventually relocated to Pulaski County, Kentucky. Frank was able to hire out and save enough money to buy he and Lucy's freedom, along with 16 other family members. Sight unseen? Frank purchased 42 acres of land in Pike County, Illinois, that would become New Philadelphia. The town was stable until a group of white businessmen from Missouri pushed for a railroad to be constructed that would bypass the town. Christopher Fennell is a professor of anthropology and law at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. These white business people in the slave state of Missouri in 1857 did not want to see this thriving African-American town, which was a commercial hub, become an even more thriving depot town. And so they actually spent more money in bypassing it. The snub cut off further opportunities for economic growth, but that was just the beginning of the promising town's decline. 
Many residents left for large metropolitan areas like Chicago and Kansas City for work. New Philadelphia dissolved in 1885, but the McWhorter descendants and people in surrounding communities never forgot about New Philadelphia. The New Philadelphia Association, a group made up of descendants and community members, has worked to preserve the town. The site has received many National Historic designations. In December, the New Philadelphia National Historic Site became the 424th National Park. Gerald says this designation was a long time coming. The National Park Service is in the forever business. So while New Philadelphia had a moment where it could have gone away and been forgotten, now it never will be forgotten. The National Park Service is still in the early planning stages of what they have in store for the site. The New Philadelphia Association has already set up a visitor center, an augmented reality tour, and signage. And visitors come to the site even in its current form. A busload of 38 fourth graders from Western Elementary School in Barrie are here on a windy spring day. They're learning about little-known Illinois history. And one of the students, Isla Moss, is excited to see New Philadelphia. And then you look around and you all you just see is like fun and you think about like what's been in the past and how they were and like like how they worked and how they lived. The National Park Service is still in the process of securing the rest of the land that made up New Philadelphia. The Park Service will also hold community conversations with stakeholders. In New Philadelphia, Illinois, I'm Marissa Ann Lewis Thompson. And this is All Things Peoria. Thanks for choosing WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Jody Holtz. Pop-up dust storms such as the May 1st event that resulted in the loss of eight lives on an Illinois interstate could eventually be curtailed if more agricultural producers take advantage of government-funded programs that help defray the cost associated with adopting sustainable conservation agriculture practices on their farms. This is the conclusion of many agricultural conservation proponents, including Pete Fandel, professor of agriculture at Illinois Central College and a cover crop specialist with the Illinois Sustainable Agriculture Partnership. He recently spoke to WCBU correspondent Tim Alexander. So there's many reasons why we do tillage, but obviously once you till the soil, you kind of disrupt the surface of the soil. And obviously then the small particles, if they get too dry and we have too strong a winds, can be moved by either wind or water erosion to a different location. Um, and there's a lot of ways to obviously reduce that. We can do reduced tillage, in other words, less tillage, um, which then results in more of the previous crop's residue being left on the soil surface, which helps protect some of that soil. And then the other option is obviously pure no-till, where you don't do any tillage before you plant. Um, and a lot of times with our, with our early planting dates and cool temperatures, that gets, it's a little bit difficult for some farmers to do in certain locations. And then the other option we obviously is cover crops, where we plant a crop or another plant during the off season when our corn and soybeans aren't growing to help kind of protect that soil surface, keep the soil biology alive and kind of hold that soil in place. So if you drive around the countryside and see, you know, a plant growing in the wintertime that typically wouldn't be in the corn and soybean field, um, that's probably a cover crop or what we call a cover crop growing out there to help protect that soil, help microbial life in the soil, 
um, kind of keep the dynamics, uh, hold fertilizer in place or sequester nutrients that might be left from the previous crop. Kind of there's, there's a lot of reasons to use cover crops, and they can be beneficial in the right places at the right time. What are some of the various types of cover crops that are used in Illinois and specifically here in central Illinois? What kind of cover crops do you use on your farm uh, in uh, Woodford County, Pete? Okay, the mo- the, definitely the number one cover crop used in the state of Illinois is cereal rye. Um, so it's uh, many farmers use that in both ahead of corn and soybeans. Um, it tends to be, in my opinion, a much better uh, cover crop to use ahead of soybeans than corn, but a lot of farmers still do it. Uh, but cereal rye is uh, basically a, um, a grain-type crop, obviously, that produces rye. Um, but again, when we use it as a cover crop, you're planting it in the fall before you harvest, maybe, or shortly after harvest in the fall. And that plant's going to overwinter as a small, you know, grass plant overwinter. And then, obviously, you let it grow in the spring until you're pretty much close to being ready to plant. In the spring with your next crop, you kill that cereal rye plant and then either, quote, no-till into there or do some very limited tillage and then plant your, the crop that you intend to be in that field for the coming year. And again, cereal rye is the most common one you'll see in the state of Illinois. Um, it pretty much precedes most of the soybean fields you'll see and does precede many soybean fields. Um, personally, though, um, I, t- I try to use different cover crops in different fields. I do like cereal rye and rapeseed um, ahead of soybeans, but then typically ahead of corn, I'll switch to something like either winter barley or triticale and maybe putting in some radishes or some turnips or other things in with that or some clovers, uh, depending on the situation, the field conditions, and what potential maybe problem I'm trying to solve in the individual field. Now, do these cover crops actually provide a revenue for your farm? Uh, how do you, how do you, do the, does the expense for these cover crops just come out of your uh, general uh, uh, farm income? Um, I guess when you first, when f- farmers first tried these probably in the last decade or so, more or less, yes, it was coming out of your own pocket. Um, but since that time, things have developed where there's lots of government programs now to help you cost share, you know, doing new practices like that um, with the new, all the new carbon trading that's going on. And, uh, you know, so there's some major co- major companies and corporations are now basically paying farmers who use cover crops because in, in sense, essentially if we're growing a crop 11 or 12 months out of the year in a field versus the six months in a corn and soybean rotation, we're actually sequestering more carbon in the soil. So now we're considering having carbon credits. And then obviously some company that maybe is trying to become carbon neutral or that maybe does a little bit of pollution in the atmosphere from burning some, you know, sulfur fuel or something or fuel source, um, they can now buy those carbon credits from farmers that are storing that carbon. So that's kind of a new big emerging market that's been happening the last few years. And I think that trend looks like it's probably going to continue into the future. So there are now uh, cash benefits to farmers for uh, doing uh, things like planting cover crops. can you again go over the uh, the soil and uh, other uh, environmental benefits of uh, farmers uh, utilizing these cover crops? Sure. Like I said, there's many reasons why you'd want to use a cover crop. Um, number one is it obviously protects the soil during the off-season when our corn and soybeans aren't growing. Number two, um, obviously that corn and soybean crops had some fertilizer applied to it so we can get the yields that we typically produce. And if for whatever reason that plant were to not use all the fertilizer that got applied that year, um, that cover crop then that's growing that fall and winter can use the rest of that fertilizer, bring it up into that plant and put it into an organic form. So therefore we don't lose that fertilizer into maybe some water source or surface body or leach into the groundwater. So that plant's going to basically sequester that fertilizer and essentially store it in that plant. And then the next spring when you kill that cover crop, it releases those nutrients back into the soil for your cash crop to use the next year. Um, other reasons, obviously, um, there are many microbes in the soil or microbial uh, uh, creatures like fungi and bacteria and nematodes. 
And a lot of those creatures that survive in the soil are part of what we call plant health or soil health. And a lot of those um, microscopic creatures need a living root to survive, which is called kind of called, called the rhizosphere. So there's a kind of a thin film of soil around every root that, um, and even though we think a lot of plants, you know, take up nutrients and water out of the soil, which they do, there are some things that actually, quote, leak back out of the plant root. Um, and actually when that leaches back into the soil, those microscopic creatures will use that as a food source. And so the longer you have a living root in your soil, you can keep that microbial population uh, surviving and happy and reproducing, which is partially um, when we start for referring to soil health, some of that comes from keeping that microbial population happy and in check and reproducing and doing the things that they do underground. Um, so yeah, there's lots of reasons why you can use cover crops. It's just, and basically a farmer member, you might ask, you know, which cover crop would you use and why? Well, I tell farmers that really don't just try to use a cover crop just because it, you know, might be the popular thing to do, but figure out what is there. Is there an issue you're having with a particular field? And whatever that issue is, there's probably a cover crop species that will help with that problem or help alleviate the problem that you're having in that field, whether it be, you know, too much water, too little water, um, you know, uh, soil compaction, nutrient loss, whatever. Uh, whatever your goal is, there's probably a cover crop that will help address that issue. So in relation to the uh, May 1st tragedy on Interstate 55 uh, involving the, uh, the dust storm at the Sangamon County line, uh, resulting in seven fatalities, uh, do you think that uh, widespread adoption of these practices, uh, including cover crops and reduced tillage and no tillage, can can have a big enough impact to uh, to help these problems, uh, to help alleviate uh, the frequency of these problems? I know they don't happen that much in Illinois, but perhaps in other states. Well, for sure. Any, anything you can do that leaves more residue or more vegetation on the surface is going to prevent erosion, whether it's from water or wind. So, yeah, obviously less tillage, conservation tillage, uh, you know, leaving more residue on the surface, cover crops, you know, any of those practices obviously are going to help alleviate that type of issue um, from, you know, again, less erosion happening. That was ICC Professor Pete Fandel speaking with WCBU correspondent Tim Alexander about cover crops. Support for WCBU agriculture coverage comes from Growmark and its FS members, your trusted advisor in all your ag decisions. And that is all for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm Jody Holtz. Thanks for listening. Story help today came from Tim Shelley, Marissa Ann Lewis Thompson, and Tim Alexander. Samantha Hill produced this episode of All Things Peoria, which is made possible in part by the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. For more information on all of these stories, head to WCBU. WCBU.org. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org, Peoria Public Radio, part of the NPR Network.